Welcome to this extended version of the Orthodox Ethos Podcast. Today we will be addressing the question of what are the real reasons for war from an Orthodox Christian perspective. This podcast was originally recorded in March of 2022. Thank you for joining us and God bless you. We're going to be addressing matters that will hopefully enlighten us and help us to better understand what's happening in the world today, especially with the unfortunate and tragic developments in the heartland of Orthodox Russia, just outside where over a thousand years ago, the Orthodox people of Rus were baptized. And now we have a war that is raging and fortunately taking lives and displacing humans, uh, human beings throughout Europe and all the rest. And every war from an Orthodox perspective is tragic. What's important for us as Orthodox Christians is to delve deeper, to have a spiritual outlook, to have a spiritual analysis, and not to be in the to not to follow the worldly mindset which does not illumine it does not allow us to understand properly and therefore to live properly so let's jump right into the analysis and for a little general look at the situation and then we'll go uh into uh the patristic and contemporary saints and their understanding of the phenomenon of war uh, also applied toward the end to this particular war that's raging right now in Russia. So first of all, we have had war with us, unfortunately, all the way back to Cain and Abel. It's a part of the fall. It's one of the, the basic uh, stances of sin and delusion of man to turn one on another. And indeed, in two, 2021, we had over 174 countries at war. And many of us, especially I think in America and other places, were so detached from the bloodshed that spread uh, and that shed throughout the world every year. Uh, many of us think that the United States, some um, uh, city on a hill perhaps, that uh, is far from uh, the, uh, the problems of the world in that sense, but actually the United States has been involved in one war, one military conflict or another throughout its history. I think maybe with one year in the 200 and something years that the United States has existed, they have not uh, engaged actively in war uh, somewhere uh, on the face of the earth. So it is unfortunately a aspect of the modern world that is... Uh, 20th century, of course, saw tremendous bloodshed. Uh, and so there are many reasons that one can talk about why war goes on. Uh, there's all kinds of, of course, forms of war. It's not just a conflict like we're seeing today in the Ukraine, but there's 50,000 deaths, for instance, in um in Mexico alone every year from the drug war, the battle between the state and others and the drug lords. Uh, but there's conflicts that have 
tens of thousands of people that die from them. For instance, in 2021, we saw in Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, and in uh, Sudan, Ethiopia, uh, we had 12 more that had between 1,000 and 10,000 that died in the conflict. And then there are two dozen that have under 1,000 people who've died. Uh, so it is, unfortunately, very much a part of our lives today. And there's a lot of speculation and reasons why people give. And we're, we're going to talk about a few of them tonight uh, that are not really the answer, but are heard and debated online and throughout the uh, blogosphere. Uh, one uh, uh, infograph that I found was what you see here on the screen. Why do wars happen? Well, the governments go to war because of a variety of reasons. There's just robbery, uh, military industrial complexes apparently are seen as reasons for war, political distraction, and um, getting keeping people happy and distracted apparently from other things. It, are those really the causes of war? Very superficial, I think, from an orthodox perspective. And in particular, we when we see Ukraine today, there's a lot we could discuss. There's a lot that people are discussing online. I'm not going to get into a lot of it tonight. My, my goal is not to uh, give you a geopolitical analysis. That's much, uh, you'll find that much better elsewhere. But we have um, just very quickly, for those who are not paying attention and not understanding, there's some basic facts in the contemporary struggle between Russia and, the, and Ukraine. And it centers around the eastern of Ukraine, and in particular, uh, on the map you see here, Donetsk and the Luhansk regions, in which there has been for, I think, what, eight years now, there's been uh, uh, essentially a war raging with at least 14,000 civilians and, and military that have been killed, uh, at least on the Russian side in this war. I'm not sure about the the numbers on the Ukrainian side, but that has been going on uh, for quite some time. And many people are unaware of all the victims from this these, uh, this war that's going on in Eastern Ukraine. And of course, those 14,000 who died uh, were uh, many times innocent people. And so that is a big part of why today there is a invasion. Uh, one can disagree on the reasons and whether they're legitimate, but that is at the heart of uh, what's um, led to the invasion of, of the Ukraine on the part of Russia to protect the Russians there who are uh, in the midst of that war. Um, and, you know, here you see a map that I just downloaded a few days ago or yesterday, which shows some of the uh, regions that have been now been invaded by Russia and the advances of the Russian army. I think this is actually a little outdated. Things are more advanced and more, uh, um, but the reasons for war, what what are they? One can discuss that quite a bit. I'm going to give you just a few cursory, superficial examples so we can discuss then more deeply what are the spiritual reasons behind why people end up going to war. Uh, just a, a cursory look on the internet, one can find that people have been talking about a possible war in the Ukraine between Russia and the Ukraine and basically between Russia and NATO. Uh, the ultimate goal here, according to these analysis that I found and that's been going on for two decades at least, going back to the 90s, 
And there's a chorus of strategic thinkers who have warned that if NATO continues to advance uh, up to the doorstep of Russia, that there will be a, inevitably a war, that Russia will not, um, not allow that to happen on their doorstep. And of course, the reasoning is not that hard to, to imagine. It's the same reason the United States has uh, for not allowing a Cuban, uh, for the Soviet Union to set up uh, missiles in Cuba. Uh, and that is, goes back 200 years, the so-called Monroe Doctrine in the United States, uh, which forbade there for, the, for there to be any other contrary power on the border or around the United States in the North, uh, North American um, continent. Uh, so as America would, did not and would not allow the uh, Soviet Union or Russia or any other power to set up missiles on their doorstep, of course, the Russians say uh, exactly that. And there are, as, I, as you see on the screen here, a whole host of analysts from a variety of backgrounds and political uh, opinions and uh, administrations, and they all say the exact same thing. Pushing Ukraine into NATO is stupid on every level, says Sir Roderick Lyme. If you want to start a war with Russia, that's the best way of doing it. And you can see Gates and Matlock and uh, other professors and servants of the of the globalists like Kissinger and all of them and the economists like Sox, all of them agree that NATO enlargement to such a degree, which would include um, Ukraine, is utterly misguided. And the true friends, as Jeffrey Sox says, the true friends of Ukraine and of global peace should be calling for a U.S. and NATO compromise with Russia. So that is that is immediately uh, among certainly a, a sizable portion of uh, global political analysis, that's one of the main causes for today's conflict. And one can have many other reasons they could cite that are legitimate and also see this as legitimate. Uh, and uh, there's nothing that says this is something pro-Russia or pro-Ukraine. It's just a realistic analysis of the, of the situation. I think most of these people would call themselves pro-Russian at all. Um, in, and they would they would probably be for a strong NATO and all the rest, but they admit that this would be a, a big mistake. And of course, Russia sees just that happening. They see Ukraine getting armed and Ukraine going further and further um, into um, a position which is de facto a, a NATO uh, satellite. And now they're actually uh, officially appealing for NATO and EU uh, admission. So that's on a geopolitical, superficial kind of geopolitical uh, uh, basis and analysis. And, you know, each one from, I'm just giving you one example, uh, this discussion could go on for, for hours, but one example which I would think many people would admit who would not favor uh, the Russian side in this conflict, they would admit that this is a big problem. This is a big part of why Russia is doing what it's doing. But each perspective, each person gives his own perspective and gives his own reasons for the cause of the war. So on the Ukrainian side, you see the call for independence from Russia, of course, the identity of the Ukrainian people, freedom from Russian imperialism, aggression, and all the rest that could be cited. And on the Russian side, you see, again, the NATO threat, the killing of Russians in eastern Ukraine. Uh, Nazism, I think, was cited by Vladimir Putin. Human trafficking is a big problem in Ukraine. And so the, the list could probably go on from the Russian side. And the U.S. and the EU, uh, through their various media outlets, are giving us 
their own uh, flavor and uh, their, the matters are always put in favor of their foreign policy. But, but that really does not explain the problem of war generally or the war that's raging right now in Russia and the Ukraine. And if we're <laughs> going to go deeper and we're going to have a truly orthodox outlook, we've got to see the things in a deeper and more insightful and discerning way. So the real reasons for this war and every war lie deeper. So we have to see beyond and go deeper. And, and if we're going to do that, we have to first be free. We have to be detached. Uh, we have to have no agendas. We can't come to this discussion with an agenda. Uh, but we have to come free from the the, um, the various machinations of the, of the political sphere and personal uh, agendas and, and all the rest. We have to be free from that. We have to free uh, uh, and recognize the great amount of propaganda today and not be uh, assume what we see on the, on the television station or wherever it might be is actually true, but it is uh, serving many, many times serving an agenda. We have to realize, and this is very basic in the spiritual life, that there are two options presented in and by the world, oftentimes, and oftentimes, both of them are of the enemy of our salvation. And they seek, uh, and we must seek to choose the third way, the one that's not suggested, the one that's outside the box, right? We've got to get outside the box that presented to us, to either right or left, Democrat or Republican. Uh, it's either, uh, you know, whatever, capitalist or, co or communist. All the dichotomies that are so common, it's either one or the other. And yet, is it really? Is it really? To walk the narrow road that's not traveled by most people, we have to get outside this paradigm. The road that is neglected by those with an agenda. The one uh, that uh, the, the agendas, the special interest, the personal interest. Uh, and the devil uses the passions of men to, 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 to further his goals. And his goals, of course, we know from the beginning uh, of the church, 2,000 years from the gospel, we know what his goal is. It's always one goal, and that is to bring about the subjugation of humanity to him, and in, especially in the person of the Antichrist. And his goal is always to work through the passions of human beings, uh, the ambition, the love of honor, the love of money, the love of the flesh, all these things that enslave man to the enemy, to, this, to the devil, he uses all those to further his goal, which is going to be uh, for humanity to bow down and worship his savior, and therefore, essentially through the Antichrist, to be his uh, subjects and, and, and claim victory in the battle against Christ and his savior uh, and the church. Um, and so if we're going to get free of, the, of his paradigm that he sets up and think outside the box, we have to have no abiding city here. We have to seek after that city which is to come. That's the key. That's the way we're free and we see things as they are. In other words, we have to ascend to the eternal perspective. We have to see things from God's perspective. And of course, that's not that cannot be colored and 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 obstructed through various identities which are purely earthly. Yes, we will have those identities. We will be an American or a, 
Russian or Ukrainian or whatever it might be, of course we're going to be. And that's very good. It's fine and good. The Lord wants every people on the face of the earth to worship him and come to him. And of course, that's going to be the, it can't be the, the defining factor. It can't be the, at the top of the hierarchy. That has to be within the context and under and seen within the perspective of heaven. And this is absolutely essential. Otherwise, we're going to get nowhere in try, trying to properly understand the spiritual reality, which is the contemporary um, situation. Now, if we're going to back it up a little bit, we're going to have to back it up a little bit before we get into more specifics about war and the spiritual dynamic at work in bringing about a war. Why does a war ultimately break out? There's an answer to that from the Orthodox perspective. But to get there, we've got to, first of all, see a few things about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to, to, to be uh, in this perspective that we say is a presupposition for us to properly understand things spiritually. So we're going to read through quickly this famous letter to the Ognitas, which helps us very much to understand the position and place of a Christian in this world. And I'll go quickly, so pay attention. I've got some basic points on the right in the next three slides for you to get the basic points that I'm going to be reading. So if you lose track of what I'm saying, just look over on the right four basic points from this first page, and keep those in mind as we go forward. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. So automatically, there's just tons we could talk about right there. Philatism uh, is, of course, a delusion uh, of some Orthodox Christians today, where they uh, see their church as purely uh, something that belongs to one nation or one people, as opposed to something that is uh, for all peoples. So it's kind of a repeat of the error of the Judaizers. We have that temptation throughout church history. In any case, Christians are indistinguishable, it says here, from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. We don't, that's not a problem. It's not an issue for us. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. In other words, one could think of maybe the, the Gnostics of the day. I don't know. Unlike, unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. Key point we'll come back to. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek in their, that day or foreign, non-Greek in the Greek-speaking world at the time. Yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. What separates them? So what, what is common is the externals. What's different is the internal way of life. The love, of course, the Lord says, they will know you are my disciples by your love, but much more than, than that. That can be not much more than that, but that can be misunderstood today in this uh, age of uh, superficial and fake love that is uh, promoted. Uh, they live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. So we have a, another city. We have no abiding city here. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens, as foreigners. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. So they're in, but not of the world. They're in Greece. They're in Russia, but they're not they don't see that, that as their homeland. Ultimately, their homeland is in heaven, right? They're passing through this. Like others, they marry and have children, 
but they do not expose them. In other words, they do not commit abortion. That's very interesting, right there. Very basic. They don't. They don't expose them. They don't throw them out. Basically, is what how, how they would commit abortion in those days. They share meals, but not their wives. They don't fornicate. They're not adulterer, adulteress. So they're not ideologues. They're not philatists. They don't commit abortion, and they don't commit fornication and adultery like the pagan people at the time. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the de desires of the flesh. That should set people immediately apart, the Christians from all the rest of the world today, which is given over so often to fleshly desires. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. It was a given that you're going to be persecuted as a Christian, of course, in those days. And it's coming again in many places throughout the world. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. So it's a given that Christians are not understood. Don't, don't, don't expect people to understand what you're doing, what, how you're living, what it means. They live in poverty, but enrich many. You see, they don't seek after riches. They're not among the rich and famous of the world. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. Reminds us of St. Paul's famous words. They, dis they suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. Their dishonor from the world is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference, their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens, strangers. They are persecuted by the Greeks, and yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. Such a good letter to reread and again and again and again and remind ourselves how far we are as poor uh, Ogdoites, 8th century Christians, to this great height that is being described here. So we're not legalists. We understand and accept that we're going to be despised and rejected by the world. We're not greedy. We don't seek riches in this world. God uh, gives us what we need when we seek the kingdom of God. And we're not vengeful. We don't go after anyone. We forgive and we love our enemies. Finally, the last part of the letter. To speak in general terms, we may see that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it, Christians are found in all the cities of the world, but cannot be identified with the world. They're not identifying themselves with a particular city or a particular ideology or a particular a political party or a particular country, right? The world generally, all that is of this world, they don't identify with that. So that's how they're going to get the perspective on what's really the cause of sin and war. That's why I'm reading this right now. You've got to be in this perspective to see things. Otherwise, you're going to be attached to this world in its many, many forms. You're not going to see properly what's going on in the world. As the visible body contains the invisible soul, so Christians are seen living in the world, but their religious life, their spiritual life remains unseen. They don't go flaunting it. They're not on the internet with their divine liturgies. They, they turn it off before they get to the gospel, after the gospel. The body hates, at least in that would be good if we did that today. The body hates the soul and wars against it. Not because of any injury the soul has done to it, but because of the restriction the soul places 
on its pleasures. Very interesting and important for us today. Let me read that again. The body hates the soul, right? The body hate, hate in the, is properly understood here, right? The body hates the soul and wars against it. The flesh properly understood here. Not because of any injury the soul has done to it, but because of the restriction the soul places on its pleasures. Similarly, the world hates the Christians, not because they have done any wrong, but because they are opposed to its enjoyments, right? Its enjoyments in the sense of its vain pursuits, right? That's what he means here. Christians love those who hate them just as the soul loves the body. We love those who hate us, the Lord says, love our enemy. And all its members despite this loves the body and all its members despite the body's hatred. It is by the soul enclosed within the body that the body is held together. And similarly, it is by the Christians detained in the world as in a prison that the world is held together. The soul, though immortal, has a mortal dwelling place. And Christians, who also, also live for a time amidst perishable things while awaiting the freedom from change and decay that will be theirs in heaven. As the soul benefits from the deprivation of food and drink, so Christians flourish under persecution. We've said in our lectures many times that the church is doing the work and the, is being the body of Christ in this world when we have offering up martyrs and confessors and ascetics. That's when the body of Christ is truly exemplary and being shown forth, just as he says here. Christians flourish under persecution. Such is the Christian's lofty and divinely appointed function, the role of Christians, the lofty and divinely appointed, for which the Christian is not permitted to excuse himself. So they're not moralist Christians. They don't stop in the morality. They go deeper. They're not boastful. They're not hedonists, of course, and they're not ambitious. They don't seek things on this earth as uh, rewards. So that should set us up to understand the stance, for instance, taken by a well-known archimandrite and spiritual father at the monastery in Essex in England. And I just happened upon this today. I thought I would include it because I think it's very good to try to drive home today what our stance should be right now before this conflict and every conflict and every war, right? So archimandrite Zacharias was asked, what should we keep in mind and do in the current political situation? And he answered, we do not know everything about the conflicts of this world, nor is it necessary to know all the details, right? We just pray and with a compassionate heart, we pray with a compassionate heart for the peace of the world and for all. We do not take sides because each side will be responsible for crimes. That's a very hard. I think he's right. The elders right. It's very hard in the midst of a war for these things not to take place. It's very difficult. Passions are inflamed and even the best fall into sins. And of course, the church, now I'm just commenting on this, this part, but the church has a penance for the soldier. Yes, the soldier defends his homeland and the church blesses the defense of a homeland. And yet when he comes back, he cannot commune. He has a penance from the church. And then that way the church recognizes no matter what is necessary and is even allowed and, and supported by the church in this fallen existence, it is nonetheless a fallen 
and terrible thing and not of heaven. So crimes will be committed in the midst of wars. And he says, we do not take sides because each side will be responsible for crimes and we do not want to share in these crimes and be condemned. If we pray for those who are more wrong than right, well, we perform the commandment to love our enemies. And if we pray for those who are more right than wrong, we do well. So there is a side that's right or more right, and there's a side that's more wrong. That's what the elder is admitting, and right, rightfully so. We're not relativists. We don't stand and turn off our brain when we see war. That's what he's asking us to do. But in spite of that, recognizing that one is more right, not always right, but more right perhaps than another one, nonetheless, we pray. So no matter how, who you're praying for, and you'll pray for all of them, all of the people involved and everyone, of course, as a Christian, you're going to do well. So no one can say, well, I'm not going to pray for that person. I saw somebody online, there was a question, I think, some Protestant, should we pray for Vladimir, Vladimir Putin? And of course, in the West, he's been demonized as entirely uh, a Hitler figure, which is absurd. But in any case, I mean, people have throw around the word Hitler left and right all, all day long today, and everyone becomes a Hitler that they don't politically agree with. But the point, the, the question they were asking is a ridiculous question. Should you pray for so-and-so? Of course you should pray for everyone. Everyone that's involved should be, the Christians should pray for them. And so therefore, the elder goes on, we cannot go wrong if we pray that God save all and grant peace to the world, especially for us priests and monks. It is very important not to become political at all not to engage the political argument for the priest and the monk, because we offer our sacrifice to God, the holy liturgy, for the whole world. And if we are for some and against others, our sacrifice is annulled. I think that when there is a war, the best is not to be judgmental, but to have compassion and pray that the Lord may spare all from suffering. If my liturgy is to have any value, no one should be missing from my heart when I stand before the altar of God and say to him, thine own of thine own, we offer unto thee according to all and for all. That's the heart of the divine liturgy, the prayers of the people right, at the, right before the consecration. Thine own of thine own, all of thy creation is thine. We offer it all back to thee because it is thine. And we, we offer it to thee according to everything that you've instructed us and for all, for all humanity, for all human beings. So, you see here, I put in the previous page here and this page quotes from the letter to Diognetus, which I think are going to be applicable. And you'll see that the application is going to be made through the lives and the teachings here of the saints, including the elder Zacharias. Christians love all men, and yet they expect from all men persecution. And a lofty and divinely appointed function is the church's role. I'm going to repeat that. A lofty and divinely appointed function Christians have in this world. And this echoes what he says here about the divine liturgy, uh, that all have to be in the heart of the priest and the people when they go before the holy altar. So this royal path of Christ, brothers and sisters, in which we champion no human doctrine, no human doctrine, right? We're not ideologues. We, we have no purely human doctrine that we champion, but we have a divine humanity. We have the divine human person of Christ who is our, who we champion and who we preach and teach. 
right? A crucified God, in fact. And so what all this means in a few words of my own is that we must love the truth above all else. And of course, the truth is not an idea, although there are there is truth in ideas, but that's not what it is existentially, ontologically. The truth is a person. And there are ideas that are closer to the description of reality, and those are closer to the truth of things. They better des describe and express the truth of reality that God is. He is. Uh, when we confess the creed, we confess the reality of things. We don't confess an opinion or idea or a belief, but we say this is reality. This is the, this is the uh, incarnate truth, the incarnate reality, the, the own, right? The one who is, right? So that everything that is properly expressing and reflecting that on the realm of ideas is a part of a reflection of the truth, but the truth is a person. And so the truth is a person who we are incorporated into in the church as members of the body of truth, Christ himself. So we have to love him above all else, above ideologies, above ethnic identities, above all the rest, right? We're talking about how we're going to see things as they are. We're going to understand war and every every expression of sin and, and fallenness properly. Uh, we have to enter into this reality, this truth. The hierarchy has to be maintained. Otherwise, if we don't maintain the hierarchy of things, we have no chance of understanding properly what's going on in the world. So first, and this is what we saw in the letter of Diognetus, right? The hierarchy was very well expressed. First, the soul. First, eternal life. First, spiritual life. First, the heavenly homeland. Only afterwards, and following and in the context of the body, afterwards of the body, afterwards of civil life, afterwards our earthly homeland. That's the hierarchy of things. So this must be maintained if we are to see and understand the underlying real reasons for sin and work. So we're going to peel back the layers. We've talked about, just, we gave a few ideas about what's going on and the reasons of the world. We have ge geopolitical reasons. Of course, we can talk about that. We can debate it. There's a lot of things that uh, we could all submit to the table of why this is happening right now. And there's very good arguments on that level. But you got to peel back and go deeper, right? Like an onion, like the layers of an onion. You peel it back and go further, further to the core. So there are external and immediately apparent reasons for war. But then layer after layer, one has to go deeper to the core reasons, the real reasons. Most people remain on the surface. Most accept what they're told. Most follow what is convenient. Most remain victims of propaganda of one nature or another, and therefore they serve the agenda of someone in this world. And they don't serve the truth, the Lord, uh, but the enemy and the liar. So you have one possible expression here of the layers it's not i'm not holding it up as, as as some kind of gospel or doctrine or anything but just to give you a sense of the layers of things you might see it in this way emotional geopolitical national ethnic societal legal ideological moral and spiritual and of course of the core is the spirit of man we said the soul the christians are like the soul in the world right the soul before the body so the spirit before all these other superficial reasons that's the real cause of, of all the fallenness, the sin, the wars in this world. And so what is the cause ultimately that 
the cauldron of sin boils over and we have a war. You might remember from other lectures we've had in the past, we talked about this image during our, our, our lectures on the new martyrs of Russia. We had an image of a, a boiling pot of the sin, all the sin of the world, right? And the, the, the writer, uh, wonderful uh, teacher at Jordanville, uh, and it just his last name just gave me Ivan uh, Andreevich. Yeah, if I'm, I'm not getting it wrong, he gives us this image that I think he's taking from, you know, of course, the saints, and it is that my sin or your sin or some small sin of lust or pride or arrogance it might be that that sin which enters into this boiling pot of the sin of the world and then spills over and brings about, you know, the final, the last straw that broke the camel's back, as it were. What is it that causes the cauldron of sin to boil over? What, or another way to put this is, how does the enemy get the rights to lead man into temptation? That should be lead man into temptation, right? To, to put him into temptation which is an outbreak of a war. It's a terrible, awful uh, situation of uh, passions. And, you know, the worst possible thing that could happen is that mankind kill one another and kill themselves, right? So it's suicidal. Uh, but, and there are many, again, historical, ideological, political reasons why this comes about. But we want to get to the deeper, go beyond that, right? It's not on the level of, he said, and she said, and our country has this, and your country did that, or the UN does this. That's all fine, but we've got to go deeper to see every war throughout history, what brings it about, right? So the proper understanding is, is, I believe, is that we have to see ourselves as all participating in the lead up to the war through our own apostasy, our own sins, our ignorance, our indifference, to the truth and to our neighbor. We're all co-responsible ultimately, right? Ultimately, we all help to create the ground upon which the blood is shed, right? And that's the nature of the spiritual life. If we were to enter in our own spiritual life and we, we were to examine our own falls, we would see that they didn't happen at the last moment. It wasn't that the last moment was the problem, but actually the moment when we were alone and didn't pray or the moment when we were alone and 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 we're or 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 with others and we were indifferent to god the many moments that were indifferent to god all of that creates the presuppositions for the fall when it comes about right they're not it's not it's you win or lose in the spiritual battle when you're not tempted in the time of peace as it were the uh the lead up to war is apparent, is made possible, right? It's not, you cannot separate those two on a spiritual, personal level and on a global uh, uh, political level. It's all connected. So for, the, for many decades now, this present war has been in the works on many levels, political, geopolitical, but spiritual especially. What's going on? Why? How do we end up here, right? So, if you only look at political machinations and you put the blame there, it reveals that we have a lack of understanding of human nature and the fall and the sin, but also our own spiritual state. 
We really don't understand the spiritual life ourselves if that's how if that's all we do, right? I'm not saying you don't look at it as well in those ways. You do, but those are again the outside of the onion, right? They're the more superficial analysis. And we don't understand our own responsibility in the whole state of things. It's very easy to take yourselves out and to become the judge of everything and say, they those evil ones. And that's the process of why our war even happens, right? Because we depersonalize the other and we buy into the lie of the enemy that he is our enemy instead of the enemy and the passions that the, the, the enemy uh, is serving up and, and, and inflaming. And so we don't hate sin, but the sinner, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't end up loving our neighbor. We make him a thing or an ideology or impersonal uh, enemy. And that's of course a, sign of our own fall and our own delusion. Just to give two examples now of what has been going on, just to take two sins, two delusions, two passions, and very grave, grave sins that are going on in the world today, but especially, unfortunately, in Russia and Ukraine. And this is a part of our own self-knowledge, right? Come to self-knowledge. Look at ourselves as Orthodox, as Russians, as Ukrainians, as Orthodox Christians. We need to understand that there's two things that are going on that have given tremendous rights to the enemy so that we could end up in this situation of killing uh, one another on the sacred uh, land of, of, of uh, uh, around Kiev and throughout Holy Russia. Abortion and human trafficking, which are especially problematic and especially sins uh, throughout the world, of course, but unfortunately in the Ukraine, according to uh, the statistics and all the rest that comes down to us. Ukraine is the seventh worst, the seventh highest in terms of abortion rate. Russia in the world is the first. Two Orthodox, it supposedly, let's say, let's be honest, the vast majority of Christian of people today in many Orthodox countries do not practice their faith, are not confessing, are not communing, right? It's a small percentage who are, even though it's still millions of people, in terms of the larger society, it's a small group compared to what it what it, what it once was, let's say. So this grave sin of abortion, the seventh highest in the world, Ukraine and Russia, the first, it creates the ground upon which now this blood is shed, right? So our sin deprives humanity. That sin the grave, grave sin of abortion, killing our own flesh and blood, innocent children in the womb. It's hard. It's, it, there's rarely a sin that's more grievous. And yet millions of women that are in Orthodox countries, Orthodox families are doing and committing the sin and have been committing it for decades and decades, going back to long before the uh, fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, so there's no boldness before God when you're unrepented of such a sin. You lose that boldness, and therefore you become like fallen soldiers on the spiritual battlefield, and the enemy overruns you. There's no resistance. You can't put up a resistance when you are unrepented of such grave sins. Where is the spiritual resistance to that? It's almost Impossible, unless there is repentance, unless there's repentance. How can one who has taken the innocent blood of their own child stand against the shedding of innocent blood in war? How can we stand with boldness and call on God and, and, and call out 
the shedding of innocent blood, when we ourselves, our mothers, our daughters, our sisters, our brothers who are, who are complicit in the abortions, our fathers, the priests who are ignorant or indifferent to this sin, who never preach against it from the altar, from the, uh, from the ambon, right? I, I, was, I lived in, a, in Orthodox Greece for 20 years. I don't know. I, I, I barely heard the, the term ectrosi, abortion mentioned. There's almost no preaching against abortion in an Orthodox country that I know of. Very few people talk about it at all. And yet, we believe that we are going to have spiritual power and we're going to be an Orthodox Christian, give a confession of faith. It's not an accident that we have grave apostasy in the world. Right? What boldness, with what boldness to pray that war may be avoided when we ourselves have murdered innocent blood? There's no boldness, brothers and sisters. If we do not repent, repentance is the basis of everything. You have to continually repent for everything. Right? And repentance means return to God. That's what it means. It doesn't mean remorse. It doesn't mean beating people over the, oh, yourself over the soul, over the back, right? And whipping yourself. That's not repentance. Repentance is change and return to communion with God and never leaving that communion. And when you do, you go back again and again and again and again until you die. This is the return. We turn away from sin and we turn to Christ. So we first have to repent. We have to weep. We have to beg God for purification and return to communion. First, we have to gain self-knowledge before we can have any spiritual or moral authority to resist the evil one. Since we've given rise to the enemy, we ourselves are removed from resistance to the evil one. Again, we're fallen soldiers on the spiritual battlefield. Only through repentance can we become a force which stands against the enemy of, of, of salvation and is a part of the prevention of that which leads to war. So to arrive at such a situation where war is possible in an orthodox setting, it means that many, not just a few, but many, many have turned their back and walked away from the grace of God. So all of these sins, you could talk about other sins too. I'm just talking about abortion, one example, because it's actually referenced by this great elder that we're going to talk about, that I've just come to know, Elder Yoana, Jonah of uh, the Ukraine, who reposed about 10 years ago. It's actually referenced as the main cause for this war, the killing of innocent blood by many in Ukraine. So now let's talk about the spiritual laws, right? This is what's key. There are spiritual laws at work. We just talked about it here, how this works, right? There are spiritual laws that you have to observe, otherwise spiritual life is impossible. We're going to go to Elder, Elder Paisius, the great saint of Manathos, and we're going to sit at his feet, and we're going to listen now for four or five slides when he talks about the spiritual laws and how they work and then apply that to our situation today in Ukraine and every war and to our life. It's We are a microcosm, or you could even say a macrocosm, depending on what you how you use the term, of this whole situation. So if you see yourself, you see how the spiritual life works in each one of us, you'll understand how it works in society and in the world generally and what needs to happen. It all begins with each one of us. So Yeronda, they asked him, Yeronda, how do spiritual laws work? Just as there are physical laws in nature, he says, there are also spiritual laws, laws in the spiritual life. For example, the higher you throw some heavy object, the harder it will fall down and break. This is a physical law. In the spiritual life, the higher someone 
exalts his in his pride, the worse his spiritual fall will be. The degree of personal injury in this case will depend on the extent of personal pride. So if we have an outbreak of a terrible war, you can only imagine the degree of blindness and pride we have in our society. Thus, a proud man rises, reaches a certain limit, and then falls and breaks his face. And as Ma it says in the Gospel of Matthew, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. So this is a spiritual law, right? There is, however, a significant difference between physical and spiritual laws. And here is the key, and this is the hope, and this is the path to uh, overcoming, essentially, and, and, and uh, undoing the physical laws, the spiritual laws, rather. Physical laws are relentless and cannot be changed, while spiritual laws come from the all-merciful God and therefore can be altered by his mercy. In other words, by our, our returning to his mercy, by our allowing his mercy to work in our lives. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, right? That calling out, of course, God comes immediately, comes as much as we allow in, into our life. So his mercy is what will change everything, but we have to return to it. We have to turn back and want it. He's not going to force us to enjoy his mercy. That is to say, if a person immediately, I'm reading, immediately notice himself becoming proud and says, God, nothing that I have is truly mine, but I am proud. Forgive me. Right? So he turns. He's, this is all internal. This is eternal warfare, the spiritual battle that's going on. Right, The one who has given rights through tremendous sin, there is no battle going on within him. He is he has given himself up. He's in. He is in uh, a captive, right? He has been taken hostage. So this is the spiritual person who says, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want to be a hostage to the devil. I return. I repent. I go back and I seek his mercy." So the, the proud man comes to himself and he says, "I have nothing that is mine. Forgive me. Have mercy on me." This internal spiritual reorientation—that's what repentance means—brings about a undoing of the spiritual laws he's spared from the damage that would have come if he had remained in his pride and arrogance because you know his fall is preceded by contrition of heart and repentance so the fall is done away with it's it's overcome the fall meaning the the consequences rather of the fall are done away with the same applies to the gospel phrase all who take the sword will perish by the sword it's not in, since Christ came, that law, right, is in effect if we don't repent. If we repent, it doesn't, it's no longer in effect. We, we can be freed from the consequences of that law. It means essentially that if I take the sword, it would be fair for me to perish by the sword. But if I realize my mistake, he says, and my conscience cuts me like a knife, and I ask God for forgiveness then spiritual laws cease to operate, and I receive the remedy of God's love. In other words, we see that God changes his, his inscrutable ways. That's, that's, that's a human projection upon God. Obviously, God doesn't change in any way. Right? He's not treptos. He's not changeable. But we, as, as, as we see it, he changes his inscrutable ways when he sees people change. When a disobedient child comes to his senses, repents, and is tormented by his guilty conscience, his father caresses him with love and consoles him. This is what human, human beings do this. How much more God? The possibility for a person to change God's decisions is a very important characteristic of spiritual laws.
If you do evil, be prepared for a smack from God, right? That's a part of his bringing you to your senses and coming back to him and having salvation. Salvation is communion with God. But if you repent, he will bless you and you will avoid the consequences of the sin. This is the basic, okay, there are lots we can talk about here, lots of examples and lots of interesting applications, but that's the basic principle, basic understanding of spiritual laws. And he goes on now, talks about, how we should stand, how we can avoid the consequences of spiritual laws, what we need to do so that we're not giving rights to the enemy any longer, and therefore we're doing our part for the wars and, and the evil in the society to be averted. We're all a part of the fate, as it were, the future of society, and that's what we need to focus on personally. I ask God to let me know myself. So he says, this is what it's all about. This is the prayer that I offer up. If I get to know myself, I shall have repentance. If I have repentance, I shall also possess humility followed by grace. And that's the only thing I keep asking for. People come, what should I? This is what we pray. Repentance, 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 he says. You needn't ask God for lights or gifts or anything else. What you must ask for God, from God, is for repentance, repentance, repentance. Return to God. We have to unpack that because we're in a Protestant heretical uh, society with mindset that is foreign to the Orthodox understanding. Repentance means return. Repentance means communion. Forgiveness means synchorisi, to be in communion with God. That's what synchorisi means, right? To, to be forgiven. Doesn't mean and it's not a legal, moral thing. It's a spiritual reality. You are no longer separate. You're in communion with God. That's what it means to repent, right? You, you, if you're not in communion with God, again, you're still on the path of repentance. You have not arrived. And ultimately, the prodigal son, to repent, it wasn't enough for him to say, oh, what have I done? It wasn't enough for him to even get up from the pigsty. He had to get on the road and, and then and come into the embrace of the Father, that's when synchronicity, forgiveness, communion was reestablished, and that's the end of repentance. Now, there's two ways we can be humbled. There's two ways we can come to ourselves. That's what humility. Humility is to be in reality. It's to be in the truth of things. It's to see things as they are. The proud man is blind. He sees things as he thinks. He exalts himself, and he has he has no basis for that. Right? He lives in a delusion. That's what it means to be proud. To be humble is to simply be in. God's truth, his reality, to see things as they are, right? It's not to beat yourself up. It's to see things how, how they are, truly. To see yourself, both the gifts that God has given you and the sicknesses that live within you and the sins you've committed, all of that to come and have clarity, that vision of things as they are. So there's two times, two ways that this comes about. There's voluntary humility and involuntary humility. And the, the elder says, in what way, Yeroda, is humility cultivated? And he says, well, humility is cultivated through our pursuit of honorable acts and is also cultivated with the measure, the lure of our falls. So there's two ways. It depends, he says. An honorable person, right? By the way, philotimo in Greek has the, ter has the, has the, the term honor within it. It's the love of honor, literally. Philotimo means the love of honor. Elder Paisos uses this everywhere in his, in his teachings. Philotimo, philotimo. He kind of changes the meaning a bit. He reorients it, and it means basically loving the good, doing the good for nothing in return for the sake of, of the love of Christ. All right, so the philotimo, 
the honorable person, the one who has philotimo, will attribute everything good that he has to God. That's the one that is understands. He, he's, he sees God as he is and who he, he, he himself is. He has self-knowledge. He sees God's many bounties. He is aware that he has not reciprocated. So he humbles himself and constantly glorifies God. Then the more he humbles himself and glorifies God, the more he will, he will be bathed in divine grace. This is called voluntary humility. Whereas the humility that is brought on by constant falls is what we call involuntary humility. Naturally, voluntary humility has a far greater value than involuntary humility. It resembles a field that has good soil and the trees on it bring forth fruits without any fertilizer or manure and their fruits are delicious. The voluntary, right? The one who, the ascetic, the one who falls down continually in prostration and prayer and love of the neighbor and constantly struggles against his passion. The voluntary crucifixion of the mind, the voluntary humbling before the brother, the voluntary calling upon, it's my fault. I'm the one who's at fault, right? The voluntary love of God, the going without anybody pushing you, that's the fruits of this humility are delicious. This is the lives that you, when you've been around a holy person, you you taste of this fruit. You understand experientially what it means that this man who's crucified himself, now he brings forth fruit and you taste of that fruit. It's one of the one of the most beautiful things in the Orthodox Church. Involuntary humility resembles a field with poor soil. For it to be fruitful, you have to apply both fertilizer and manure, which stinks, right? So its fruits will come, of course, but it won't be so tasty. This is the great a gift of the elder, St. Paisios, that he gives us these simple and wonderful ways of understanding the spiritual life. Now, I want to turn and pivot a little bit and talk about something else that the saint talks about, because this also is a part of the struggle for virtue, the love of the love of, uh, of honor, the philotimo that we all have to have today. And it's also an antidote to those things which bring about spiritual destruction and, and national destruction, like this war that's going on in Ukraine, and, and all of these great evils that uh, are coming upon the world. There's another aspect of this, which is also an aspect of love of God, right? So there are many who want to make, who turn Orthodox Christian spirituality into a pietistic uh, view of, of things, right? They want, they essentially are pietists. They're Orthodox pietists. They want everything to be just about me and my spiritual struggle and to be indifferent to what's going on around us in the world and in the church and all the rest. St. Paisos did none of that. He had none of that. And listen to what he has to say, because this is also a part of our repentance. This is also part of our return. This is a part of our being uh, on the spiritual battlefield and actually warring against the enemy. It's not just on a personal, individual, internal level. It has to be expressed on a communal, social, and uh, ecclesiological level. And so the elder, and this is there's much more that we could quote, but we're not going to do it because of time. The elder says, there's a war on today. There's a holy war, he calls it. Of course, he's not talking about jihad. <laughs> today, they're trying to destroy the faith, he says. For the edifice of faith to fall, they quietly pull out one stone, then another. But we're all responsible for the destruction. See that co-responsibility? This is the same thing applied today to the war in Ukraine. No one can sit there and be self-satisfied and say, I'm not a part of the problem for this war to have erupted. No one. Now, it is very easy to say, well, 
Those who have greater responsibility have much more responsibility. It's not spiritually profitable for us to do that. And those who do it don't understand what they're missing and how they're undermining their own spiritual uh, progress. So we are co-responsible, he says, for this, this pulling out of one stone uh, after another in the edifice of the church and of the faith of Jesus Christ. We're co-responsible. First thing we need to realize is we are breathing in the pestilence of the age. If you don't understand that, you have no hope of overcoming that sickness, right? You will not understand that you need medicine, right? So the first step is, I am sick. I am co-responsible for the destruction of the edifice of faith, not somebody else's problem. It's very easy for us all to, to, to say, and he'll reference them, the Masons, the Ecumenists, whatever it is, right? The enemy, the boogeyman, we have, we have these. These people exist. They've always existed. There's always been heretics. There's always been enemies of, uh, uh, of the people of God, et cetera, et cetera. We can recognize that. But we have to first for, and foremost understand our participation in the destruction of the house of faith and the uh, uh, our, our AWOL, right, from the spiritual battlefield. So he says, not just those who destroy, but we who see how faith is being undermined and make no effort to strengthen it. We are co-responsible. As a result, the seducers are emboldened to create even greater difficulties for us, and their rage against the church and the monastic life increases. Who are the seducers? Well, there are many kinds of seducers. There's the, the fleshly man. There's the, uh, the man, the, 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 those who serve uh, the various ideologies of the world. There's all kinds of seducers that are coming. They're all men of passion, men of delusion, right, of this world. They don't have the mind of Christ. But we can't control them. We can't turn their destruction off. But what can we do? We can resist. We can uh, not allow them to become emboldened by our indifference. Today's situation, he says, can be resisted only spiritually. Only spiritually. Not by worldly means. In our day, it is a true witness to speak up for one's people, for the state is war, waging war against divine law. The state, every state, right? This is uh, uh, the nature of the state in the end times, of course, will be that the Antichrist will take control of the rulers of this world and they will serve the various agendas. Uh, and so it is a true witness to speak up for the people of God, the people of Greece, of Russia, of Ukraine, the Orthodox people, the Christian people. It's laws... Today's state is direct, are directed against the law of God. And he goes on. But we are responsible for not letting the enemies of the church corrupt everything. Though I've heard even priests say, don't get involved in that. It's none of your business. If they had reached such a non-striving condition through prayer, I would kiss their feet. <laughs> They're indifferent because they want to please everyone and live in comfort. God help them and us, if that's what we are about. Indifference is unacceptable, even for laymen. Many people write me and say, Father, what should I do? How should I, uh, in this parish setting or in this uh, community, what should I do? Well, certainly you have to do something, right? But we'll talk about how. But there's no question that you cannot be indifferent, right? That is a part of your salvation, this saint is saying very clearly. How much more, he says, the clergy. An honest spiritual man doesn't do anything with indifference. Cursed be he that doeth the work of the God, Lord deceitfully. 
says the prophet Jeremiah. There's a war on today, a holy war. I must be on the front lines. There are so many Marxists, so many Masons, so many Satanists and assorted others. So many possessed, anarchists and seduced ones. I see what awaits us and it's painful for me the bitter taste of human pain is in my mouth. And actually, that is a characteristic, brothers and sisters, of one who is struggling, is that he has the bitter taste of human pain and suffering in his mouth. In other words, he co-suffers. In other words, he's in pain uh, for the things that are going on in the world. All right, that's enough. There's much more we could do from Pfizer's God. I hope all of you have read and are reading his discourses. You should all have acquired those five volumes. They should be required reading the life of St. Paisus, of course, that has been published, should be required reading for every Orthodox Christian today. If you want to have philotimo, if you want to be a part of the struggle, if you want to make progress spiritually, you need to read the writings of contemporary saints, and St. Paisus is, of course, one of the greatest. Now, I want to talk briefly, before we end this and open up to questions, about some examples about how to understand the stance of Orthodox Christians in the, in the midst of war, and how to understand some of these issues, because certainly all of you are going to be faced with these questions today. And this is related, but not so much to the question of the real reasons for uh, for war, right? The real reasons, I th hopefully you've understood quickly in this brief presentation. There are many. It's like an onion. There are many levels to it. All of it is a part of it. None of that is irrelevant, but certainly in the hierarchy of things, or in the, if you want to go in the, put it in another way, the depths, to go to the depths of the problem, the depths of the problem are always, will always be, and are always spiritual. And they have to do with our own uh, falls and lack of repentance, our giving rights to the enemy, right? That's the key. So when you go back and you say, well, how did it end up two Orthodox countries, whether it be Greece and Bulgaria in the beginning, the, the start of the tw uh, 20th century, right? We had the Balkan Wars with Orthodox fighting each other in Bulgaria and Greece and Northern Greece, whether it be uh, Ukraine and uh, uh, Russia today, or whether it be, I don't know, pick your conflict between Christians or Orthodox Christians. This is a tragedy for us as Orthodox Christians. And certainly, again, we have a battle. There's, there's globalists and Masons and all the rest. We understand that. But it's not only and not mainly on that level. And if we stay there, we're really not spiritually going uh, to solve anything. We're not going to understand things thoroughly. Uh, we're not going to be enlightened. We're not going to be uh, like the uh, the uh, ancient Christians, which I read you the letter of the Augmentus. So two words on that. We'll come back to your, those things in your questions. If you have questions, if you're in YouTube or uh, uh, Facebook, you can submit them. Uh, put question all caps and uh, get John Kaufman's uh, uh, attention, and we'll we'll answer your questions at the end of this talk. Now we've got a few more things to go through. I want to talk about the witness and example of Saint Nikolai of Japan during the Russo-Japanese War. And this is the this is the uh, letter now from the Tsar Nicholas, Saint Nicholas of Russia. And to St. Nicholas of Japan after the Russo-Japanese War. And I think it's really wonderful to see a ruler, the czar, writing to a saint and understanding the proper role of the bishop in such moments. Because certainly there are such bishops today on the uh, exactly in a similar situation in the Ukraine today, right? And people are saying, well, how should Metropolitan Onufri, for instance, respond to what's going on today? Well, look what St. Nikolai did. We'll talk a little bit about that and listen first to the words of Tsar 
uh, St. Nicholas. You have shown before all, he says to St. Nicholas of Japan, you have shown before all that the Orthodox Church of Christ is foreign to worldly dominion. This is the czar talking, right? <laughs> and he's recognizing the role of the church very clearly. You have, he's not trying to co-opt the church. This is a, a great virtue of a ruler. It's rare, very rare. The Orthodox Church of Christ is foreign to worldly dominion and every tribal hatred. He is, of course, to remind you, the great missionary to Japan and the war was between Japan and Russia. And he was, of course, praying as a Russian for both sides, but obviously the Russian people that he belonged to. But as the hierarch of the Church of Japan, he was also uh Praying for the people in Japan, and the and and he was telling the Japanese to pray for uh, the defense of the country and the homeland and all the rest. Right, so very interesting. He says, "You showed us that your that the Orthodox Church is above all tribal hatred, all philatism, and for another word, and embraces all tribes and languages with her love. In the difficult time of the war, when the weapons of battle destroy peaceful relations between peoples and rulers, you, in accordance with the command of Christ, did not leave the flock and trusted you. You didn't abandon the, the Japanese people, of course, and the grace of love and faith gave you strength to endure the fiery trial amidst the hostility." of war to keep the peace and of faith and love in the church created by your labors. So obviously we're not going to as Orthodox Christians become ideologues, and especially if we're ahead of the flock of people who are in the midst of this, this conflict, but we're going to do what St. Uh, Nicholas of Japan did. We're going to do, and we're going to have the understanding as rightly said by St. Nicholas, uh, the czar martyr. And now another example, very instructive for us, to get us out of the two options, right? We have the devil, two options. The, you're either a pacifist or you're a, you're a, you're a pro-war, right? There's no other option, right? This is the, this is the dilemma that's always presented. You know, we have the example of St. Cyril, the great missionary to the Slavs, St. Cyril. And he was asked by a Muslim, Saracen. They asked him, the enlightener of the Slavs, right? He's a missionary, and he's asked by the Muslims, how can Christians wage war and at the same time keep Christ's commandment to pray to God for their enemies? Because the Orthodox Church is not pacifistic, right? We understand that in this fallen world, there will be soldiers and there will be Christians called upon to defend one's homeland from an attack. Uh, the church would never, I think, support a... Uh, unprovoked and uh, uh, ruthless uh, killing of others, invading of others. Uh, obviously, the church would uh, not see that as virtuous. How could it be? But if it's in the context of defending lives, innocent lives that are being persecuted, being killed, being uh, genocide going on, et cetera, et cetera, uh, this is the context that he says the Orthodox Christians uh, engage in warfare. To this, St. Cyril replied, if two commandments were written in one law and given to men for fulfilling, which man would be better, a better follower of the law? The one who fulfilled one commandment or the one who fulfilled both? Osiris has replied, well, undoubtedly, he who fulfills both commandments. St. Cyril continued, Christ our God commands us to pray to God for those who persecute us and even do good to them. 
But he also said to us, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That is why we bear the insults that our enemies cast at us individually and why we pray to God for them. However, as a society, we defend one another and lay down our lives so that the enemy would not enslave our brethren, would not enslave their souls with their bodies, and would not destroy them in both body and soul. So this is an example of both commandments, depending on the context, being carried out, and therefore the will of God being accomplished. You can see how there's a third way, there's a third understanding, there's a third narrow uh, path, a high-wire act, as it were, to avoid the extremes always. It's always both and, right? Both commandments, both one and the other uh, are necessary. Now, before we close out, I want to share with you, you might have already seen it on social media, the pro prophetic utterances of a recent elder, what he's been referred to in the Greek context as a St. Paisios of the Ukraine. He reposed, I think, in 2000. I want to say, let me think, let me see. He reposed in 2012, all right? So the few pro prophetic utterances from this contemporary saint, the church always has uh, a prophetic voice that will speak truth. Um, they're very few in our day, but they exist. And so we have this example of Elder Jonah of Odessa. Odessa, Odessa. Uh, he says, talking about, uh, apparently, what we're living through right now, this is what people are saying. He's talking about what we're, we're facing with this war and the Pascha that is coming, he says, the first will be full of blood. The second of hunger and the third will be the victory. Now, there could be a variety of interpretations. What comes to mind when I read this is the words of St. Paisios, who talks about there being hunger in Greece uh, at some point during the conflict. Uh, and then he also talks about the disestablishment of contemporary Turkey and eventually the victory of, in his prophetic utterances, this may be another podcast. We can talk about the prophetic utterances of St. Paisius and clear up some obscurity that exists online about um, what exactly was said, who said it, when did he say it, etc. St. Paisius definitely talks about time of hunger and difficulty in Greece, and then a time where there will be victory and there will be an establishment of orthodoxy again in the um, unforgettable lands, as, as they're called in Greece. Uh, so this personally reminds me of the words of Paisos, and we are apparently facing, I think everything's pointing to this, the fulfillment of this prophetic utterance that there will be a Pascha, uh, which will be unfortunately in the midst of war. Now, he does talk about the war that is coming, and he says the following. Regarding the division and war in Ukraine, of course, it had, hadn't started in, in 2012. I think it started in earnest in 2014, so this is very interesting. The priest said that this war is spiritual. This is one of his spiritual children talking. He said this war is spiritual, and no matter what they say, its main goal is to tear Ukraine away from holy Russia. No matter what they say, who's they? I'll let you understand that. It's pretty obvious. What they say is to tear Ukraine away from holy Russia and destroy orthodoxy in it. We have the schismatic, delusional groups, Makarios, Filaret, that were recognized as orthodox, unfortunately, 
Some of them never being ordained at all, never recognized as even ordained, and yet now Orthodox bishops, so supposedly a local Orthodox church, and they want to be torn away. They don't want anything to do with Holy Russia, and he's saying that's the main goal. This is what it's all about. Of course, if the hierarchy is that the top is spiritual, and that's what this is all about, then, of course, we understand this is the proper setting. Proper understanding here is that this is all about tearing the Orthodox people, disunity among the Orthodox people, disunity in the church. This is what the, the fruit of the devil. This is the fruit of the enemy. This is not the fruit of God. So he's saying the main goal is to tear Ukraine away from Holy Russia, destroy Orthodoxy within it. But then, as it were, he looked in the distance and said, but the Lord will not allow this. So we have a prophetic utterance about this particular struggle for the Ukrainian people that the Lord will not allow this. And then finally, I'm going to close with what was said recently about a year ago and re-posted re, uh, all over social media by Metropolitan Neophytos of Morfu in Cyprus. And he's talking about this great elder of Ukraine. And I'll just read what he says, and then we can open it up to questions. So if you have questions, this is your time to pop them over uh, and, and write them up. He says, a year ago, a Ukrainian saint has said this. You have it online as, as well. Holy Elder Jonah. He reposed just a few years ago on the 18th of December, 2012. He is the Ukrainian Paisios or Porfirios. And this is what he said. People from outside will confuse us and make us fight each other. All of us, brothers and sisters out there, the Russians, the Ukrainians who are patriots for their, their particular homelands or causes, Remember this, the enemy divides us. The enemy from outside, those who do not love Christ and orthodoxy, they seek to divide us. We will fight against our Russian brothers, he says. Oh, what a war that will be. He doesn't say that in a good way, right? He says with great pain, just in a matter of days, the Russian army will go to Kiev. And that's exactly what we've seen. We have exactly one week and they're on the outskirts of Kiev. And there will be such a joyful uh, reception. Uh, for, uh, there will be such joy for the Ukrainians who will be impatiently waiting for the Russian army. Obviously, there are some Ukrainians who won't be. But he's talking about the Orthodox, I'm assuming. The Orthodox Russians, the Orthodox Christians, who are not, if they're Orthodox, desiring the division of the Orthodox Church and the Orthodox peoples. So they will... Welcome the end of this division. Because in this way, all the political and church issues of Ukraine will be resolved. This is this is from Metropolitan Neophytos of Morfu in Cyprus. And then he goes on in the, in the video and he says, when I told the ecumenical patriarch that all of this is happening because of geopolitical reasons, he said, no, this is not a geopolitical issue. And then Metropolitan the officer says, well, what do you mean it isn't? It's so obvious that it is a geopolitical issue. So you should understand that many times when God wants to solve some problems that are impossible for the humans to solve them, this is really important right here. This is exactly what how the Lord does this. He's done it throughout history. Look at the, the various uh, ins and outs of uh, Roman history, of the fall of Constantinople, of uh, many, many things you can point to in, throughout church history. When there's some impossible human problems, he allows these things, he allows events like this to happen. He has no other option. There's pride, arrogance, sin, no repentance. 
So he wants to bring about the salvation of the world. He allows difficult things to happen. He doesn't wish them to happen. He doesn't want them to happen. He's not the author of war. We just went through all that, right? But he allows them and he works within them for the good of whoever wants to be saved. These are so-called Christ's interventions in which other way can these issues in Ukraine be resolved? This is how they will be resolved according to Metropolitan Neophytos. So now this requires a great deal of crucifixion of your intellect. Get your head around how God is working in the midst of all this, in spite of the, the passions and, and, and rights that we've given as Orthodox Christians, as, as fallen human beings, to bring about such a development. In spite of that, right, both and, at the same time, there will be good coming out of bad, and that's what the Lord does. So you might, some of you might have begun this, this uh, session tonight by saying, well, Father Peter's going to come and give us the real geopolitical or the real whatever reasons and support our particular vi vision of this. And I think this is the answer to all of us, that God is allowing it, working through it for the salvation and the betterment of his church. At the same time, this didn't have to happen. At the same time, this is the fruit of sin, of course. At the same time, unfortunately, we are co-responsible. And the human, our duty and our path to restoration absolutely passes through our own personal repentance. Uh, and God works even more um, effectively and quickly if that is going on, of course. If we're synergy, if we're cooperating with the grace of God, then these things come to an end much more quickly.